0: Hey, guys, it's Sabi Sabs, and I have a special guest with me today. His name is Shahid Buttar. He's an activist and a civil rights lawyer, but you probably know him best from challenging Nancy Pelosi for the U.S. House of Representatives for California's 12th congressional district.
1: Welcome, Shahid. Thanks, Sabi. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me.
0: Cool. So before we get started, could you tell everyone a little bit about your background?
1: Sure. Yeah, happy to. I'm a civil rights lawyer, constitutional lawyer more. has been my focus over the last 20 years. I'm an artist, I'm an organizer, and I'm a candidate for public office. I'm an immigrant primarily. That's sort of my first identity. I was born in the UK as part of the South Asian diaspora. Grew up in rural Missouri I had a chance to spend 10 years in Chicago going to night school to get my undergrad degree and then had the opportunity to study law at Stanford about 20 years ago. The university hired me to teach other students before I graduated and then I went to Washington after I graduated and fought the right wing. I have had two different stints of five years each in the nation's capital, fighting for San Francisco's values without a seat in Congress. So to the extent the job is to represent my city's values in Washington, I've done the job before, I've been very frustrated by the misrepresentation of the city I love by an agent in Nancy Pelosi of the military industrial complex. And I see our species being run off a cliff. And from my work organizing artists collectives to my work at nonprofits, to my work leading a nonprofit, fighting the Patriot Act, you know, I've done everything I can over the course of the last 20 years to defend the future from the past and uh, remain very eager to continue doing that.
0: Awesome. So today we're going to talk about um, running for office and more particularly running in a grassroots campaign and what that experience was like for Shahid. So um, Shahid, you ran against Nancy Pelosi. Um, what was that like and why did you decide to to run against her?
1: It was intense, to say the least. I can tell any number of stories uh, depicting it, but I'll say that it has certainly been a uh, well, a lot of things. I, I, we won 80,000 votes in November. And so that feels very exciting, especially given that we've more than doubled our vote count uh, from March to November. And so that suggests a trajectory that's uh, very encouraging. And to that extent, I'd say that we've, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've thrown the jab and we're coming with the cross, right? Now, in terms of what, the, what drove me to run, ultimately, I've just grown really frustrated by the misrepresentation of San Francisco. I've done everything one can to influence federal policy as an advocate, as an impact litigator in the courts, as a grassroots organizer in the streets, as an artist cultivating people's awareness. And I have seen, despite all that work, the figure in Washington, the very powerful figure in Washington representing one of America's most progressive cities, the place that I've called home for 20 years, representing that city with a voice and votes favoring Wall Street and the Pentagon over San Francisco. San Francisco is the city where the United Nations was founded. We have a plaza dedicated to the place basically where the the charter was signed after the second world war. And Nancy Pelosi is an apologist for CIA torture. She's been covering up torture by the US government for over, well not over, but about 20 years. And that to me is not okay. She, like every member of Congress, swears an oath of office to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And even after impeaching President Trump, she expanded his surveillance powers. That's not okay. I've seen Nancy Pelosi give Donald Trump over $4 billion for concentration camps on our nation's borders without any protections for human rights. I'm just not willing to be represented by a voice in Congress like that. And I don't have any particular superpower or, uh, you know, inflated sense. I'm just a schmo with a pen and a 20 year history of bringing right in the face of a bipartisan consensus running us into brick walls. And I basically would just like to, instead of saying, I told you so, get into a position where I can help us step over some of these pitfalls. That's ultimately why I ran. Uh, and I first ran in 2018, just to depict sort of, you know, where we're at. So in 2018, versus the 2020 primary versus the 2020 general election. Each of those experiences were frankly wildly different from each other. Um, And and I can get into it how, if that's interesting, but I would just say running as a grassroots candidate is uh, an incredible opportunity. It's a, it does take an enormous amount of commitment and time, you know, it's turned my hair white. Uh, And, you know, I I mean that half jokingly but it is in fact true, you know. I don't know if it's taken years off my life or not, uh, but you know you certainly will take your punches uh, running against icons of the establishment. And you know I've been smeared relentlessly, uh, subjected to racist campaigns uh, by unethical actors, amplified by institutional press outlets. Uh, you know when you run against the establishment, you make some enemies if you're successful. And we were uh, in 2020 wildly successful in spreading. The platform and the message. We weren't yet successful in liberating the seat, but uh, having run twice and built some momentum and a, a much larger audience than I started with, uh, I'm very eager to finish the job in 2022.
0: Mm, definitely. Um, we even saw like the attacks and smears th- that they did to Bernie or things they've been trying to say about Bernie, like mainstream media, anything to, to just get people to not like vote for him. And then they saw that wasn't really working. So then they were like, okay, let's just do a blackout. Right. And ignore him and not give him any attention. That didn't work either because then like Bernie had a heart attack and that actually gave him more attention. Um, but yeah, they, they try like all different things. Uh, what would you say like, when you look back on your campaign, what would you say were some of the biggest challenges that you faced?
1: Initially, in 2018, the biggest challenge that I faced was fundraising and time. I got into the 2018 race with just about three months before the primary election, largely because i'm not a politician I wasn't looking to run for office. I just was really frustrated by the incumbent and as the primary was approaching and I looked at who was running to challenge her, I couldn't feel any degree of excitement by any of the alternatives and uh i I'd watched and and volunteered for Bernie's 2016 campaign. And he had invited people to run for office and contest elections and put establishment figures on notice that their commitments to Wall Street before Main Street was not going to work for them and and to liberate what seats we could, right? And build the movement in the meantime. And so I signed up. I was like, okay, I I saw that the interest in a brighter future was not limited to me. Bernie proved that pretty convincingly. And I also saw in Bernie 2016, how to run an activist campaign. That is to say a campaign that's dedicated to communities instead of careers. And so that's what we did. And, and my biggest challenge in 2018 was time because I had so little time in the race. We beat all of the other progressives and I came up a thousand votes short of the Republican candidate who edged me uh, because they'd had longer time in the race and more money. So with that came back in 2020. In 2020, our biggest challenge, frankly, was the press. Uh, and I wanna, I wanna separate independent press from institutional press. The independent press, frankly, was great to us. Uh, you know, it is because of the independent press that we had an opportunity to raise a million and a half dollars and win 80,000 votes challenging Pelosi in this past November's election. That's more than anyone who's ever confronted her ever. Uh, in the face of that, the institutional press bent over backward to insulate power from the strongest grassroots challenge that it has ever seen in San Francisco. And that that took a lot of different forms. One of them in the same way you were describing that happened with Bernie was a whiteout. The corporate media in San Francisco just did not mention me at all. The only broadcast outlets in San Francisco that ever covered our campaign were the Pacifica radio outlet and the Fox TV outlet. What that means is that every other local news outlet, ABC, CBS, NBC, for a year, every day, found more important things to cover than the first challenge to the sitting Speaker of the House from within her own party ever in her 33-year career. And Mm -hmm. that is simply unethical journalism that not only undermines candidates like me, the point that's important here is that it undermines democracy by preventing the public from knowing our options. And I'm not complaining here that they only covered the horse race aspect of the campaign. They didn't cover the campaign at all. And if they did at all, San Francisco would likely have made other choices. There was no debate in this race. There hasn't been a debate in this race since 1987. That's absolutely inexcusable. And that's not just Pelosi's fault. That's the San Francisco Chronicle's fault. That's the fault of every media institution across San Francisco. And as a grassroots challenger, running against one of the most powerful corporate politicians on the planet. I am absolutely convinced, I have no doubt in fact at all, that if San Francisco had a chance to hear the choices before us, Nancy Pelosi wouldn't be in Congress today. But because she's able to hide behind the ubiquitous presence of her name in every news cycle and effectively limitless corporate campaign contributions, she simply doesn't have to actually campaign. And that's the fault of the press for letting powerful incumbents off the hook. It is an abdication of professional responsibility that does our democracy a disservice. So just to sum that up, time, fundraising, and the press were our three biggest obstacles. One reason I said that it shifted over, you know, from one cycle to the next is in 2020, we solved the time problem. We solved the fundraising problem, but we couldn't solve the press problem. And at the end of the day, you know, the bias in the news media is what not only can put Nancy Pelosi back in office, but I dare say it continues to skew our democracy by undermining voices calling for universal health care, by undermining voices calling for immigrant rights, by undermining voices calling for racial justice and equity in our economy in favor of voices who favor Wall Street. And, you know, that's a challenge that is, I sometimes describe it as a hole in the bucket of our democracy, uh, but our challenge is to fill it with enough water that we can win, notwithstanding those challenges. And, uh, you know, it's one of the reasons why I'm so grateful for out, outlets and voices like yours that do provide information outside the corporate channels.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to me too uh, with her because she says she's only going to do two years and then retire. So in my mind, I'm just like, what was the point?
1: Well, close. She hasn't announced her retirement. She said that she's going to give up the gavel in two years, but she hasn't said anything about her seat. And, and that's important for a couple of different reasons. One is that Nancy Pelosi, even without the gavel, could remain the most powerful member of Congress because she is the money spigot for the entire corporate party. Every corporate Democrat gets there. She's the one who's raising all the money. And so if, if you think about the way she could exercise influence as a kingmaker behind the scenes, even without holding the gavel, it's not clear to me at all that she's intent on leaving Congress. There's a further complication here. So Nancy Pelosi has a daughter, Christine. She serves on the DNC, the Democratic National Committee. It's a not secret at all that the Pelosi's have wanted Christine to take Nancy's place and hold this seat for another generation whenever her mother does retire. And if there's anything that as an immigrant offends me more than bipartisan corporate rule killing the future in the name of enriching the wealthy in the present, the only thing, frankly, that enrages me more than that is nepotism and the idea of the world's first democracy being undermined and eroded by this phenomenon of family dynasties. There's no place in the United States for dynastic politics, whether it's, frankly, the Kennedys or the Rockefellers or the Bushes or the Clintons or the Trumps or the Pelosi's. Nancy Pelosi is herself a daughter of a political dynasty, and she is now the matriarch of one. Her father was a big city mayor. Her brother served in Congress. She herself has been in Congress for 33 years. Her nephew is currently the governor of California. This is a fully established political dynasty. And I am absolutely not okay with that pattern of representation undermining the voice of a proud progressive city like San Francisco.
0: Wow. Wow. Good grief. It's just, it's, it's crazy. Like, so one of, one of the things that um, I was talking to someone recently about, who's also from California, but they're in um, Southern California, they were talking about the tent communities. And then I, I wanted to ask you in reference to that, like, I, I know about them, um, but for people who may not be aware, can you explain like with the tent communities in San Francisco, like, what is it and why, why is it happening?
1: Two blocks from my front door is an entire city block that is filled with tents. And there are people without homes. Many people who lived in San Francisco who lost their homes to eviction. And this has been a terrifying pattern that's gone on for longer than a decade. Our city has been hollowed out viciously by gentrification. The racial composition of San Francisco is not the same that it was before because so many people have been pushed out. And we have enough housing for everyone, but not everybody has a home. And for that reason, we've got massive. I mean, there, there. I think, I think the last count I read was forty thousand homeless people uh, in the Bay Area. And you know, when you think about a city in San Francisco that is also one of the richest cities in the country, we have the most millionaires of any city in the United States, and also more homeless people than in the any city in the United States. And I think that combination is entirely on brand for American corporate crony capitalism. It might seem coincidental, but they're absolutely related because with opulence comes destitution and poverty and desperation. And I'm grateful on the one hand uh, that our city has in some ways tried to accommodate and provide resources to homeless folks, but it's not enough by a long shot. Housing is a human right. And we have enough homes for everyone. And it's because we, we allow housing to be a commodity and an object of speculation instead of a human right. And we shouldn't be treating basic human needs as objects of speculation, whether that's housing or healthcare, right? Basic human needs are basic human rights. And I'm very eager to make sure that we have policymakers in Washington who not only understand that and are committed to that vision, but are willing to pass laws to make that vision real. And and that's one of the reasons why we have tens of thousands of homeless people in San Francisco is because our generations of preceding policymakers, particularly at the national level, have not seen fit to provide the resources to make sure that everyone has a home. I could dive into this maybe just to take that up one notch. There used to be many billions of dollars every year appropriated for federal block grants to states through HUD, the Agency for Housing and Urban Development, so that states could provide pass-through grants to property developers so that when property developers were building new buildings, they'd have an incentive to include units for affordable housing for lower income residents. That budget dried up almost entirely since Nancy Pelosi got to Congress. We've seen over the last generation, the budget for the community development block grant program through HUD fall through the floor. And you know, the last appropriation before Trump tried to zero it out entirely was only three billion dollars a year. That's down almost 80% from its inflation-adjusted high point in the 70s. And what that is to, that means basically is that the federal government has abandoned affordable housing for all intents and purposes. And I would like to see, and we have the resources, if we use them, to secure a vision of social housing where the government owns the infrastructure and it's accountable to the residents and the community. We've never tried that in the United States. And that kind of vision could make sure that everybody in the United States has a roof over their head. That's not a lot to ask for. In every other industrialized country, they don't have this problem. The phenomenon of homelessness is all but unknown in Europe. It reveals, I think, our system here in the United States is one that, you know, I would say that it is barbaric, except I don't think it's even barbaric. The Northern European Germanic tribes, they treated each other better than we do in the United States. And, and I think it's an absolute reflection of the failure of our system, that, that so many San Franciscans sleep every night without without shelter.
0: Oh my gosh, that's so heartbreaking. I couldn't imagine like walking down the street and just seeing like a line of tents. It's, I, I think, how long would you say that this has been going on?
1: Over a decade, and, and it's gotten worse. I mean the tent cities before might have been isolated to a particular You know, you might see like four or five on a block. There are now entire city blocks that are 10 cities. Um, And I can think of in in Oakland, if you go under any highway overpass, there are, you know, people just trying to survive. And I want to be clear here. You know, it's one thing to see people who are struggling with housing insecurity. I've been homeless myself in my late teens. And, you know, I frankly didn't have... To endure the worst of it by a long shot, I was very fortunate to have friends who, at different points, you know, different people sheltered me and that was something I remain very grateful for. But the insecurity, the vulnerability, the precarity that someone feels when you don't have a space, I wanna make this really sharp because it intersects police violence in a really intense and disturbing way. So about a year ago, almost, in fact, almost a year to the day, I think it was this month, last year, that an off-duty FBI agent shot one of my unhoused neighbors about 50 feet from my front door. And thankfully the young man survived. Uh, And and I wanna tell the story of three meetings that happened in the wake of that shooting. The first one was a meeting convened by a local nonprofit, the Homeless Youth Alliance. And I went and I just to hear and learn. And I, I heard dozens of people, all homeless folks in my neighborhood, talk about how not only were they outraged by the shooting of this friend of theirs, a totally harmless young man uh, who frankly was trying to intervene to prevent this off-duty agent from beating up an African-American friend of his who was being roughed up specifically for rolling a joint at the corner of Haight and Ashbury. Haight and Ashbury is an iconic corner in San Francisco. There have been more joints rolled at that corner than I could conceivably count over the last 70 years. And this FBI agent decides to start roughing up an African-American unhoused youth uh, for, for doing what everybody else does all the time and so it was intervening in that situation that got this young white man shot in the stomach uh, by this off-duty agent and the thing that i really found interesting in this first meeting i went to was hearing all these other folks unhoused folks in the community talking about how scared they each were that this same agent or another one or some SFPD officer could roll up on one of them because we who have homes we have constitutional rights theoretical rights mostly, but they are in some ways real. And one of those rights is to close the door. If a cop doesn't have a warrant, they're not going to, unless you're Fred Hampton, burst into your house and shoot you in your sleep. That can happen to anyone unhoused. They are at perpetual constant risk of state violence. And coming to understand that perspective, you know, it's bad enough to not know where your next meal is coming from or to be exposed to the elements, but the idea that some random agent of the state can just roll up on you, at any moment of any hour of the day, and there's nothing you can do about it. That to me really brought home what my unhoused neighbors are dealing with. And just to, I'll try to make this next part go quicker. The second meeting I went to was at a local bookstore. There were members of local government there, uh, representatives from the police department, the DA's office. And they all said this, the shooting is completely unacceptable and as local officials trying to deal with an off-duty federal Bureau of Investigations officer. There's nothing that any of us can do about it. Not a single thing. The only person who can do anything about it is the federal representative. That's Nancy Pelosi. She has not once ever, to my knowledge, even mentioned the incident once. The third meeting I went to, I organized with Copwatch, a local organization in San Francisco. The, we invited the victim, uh, the survivor's family to come and address the crowd, which they did. They FaceTimed the survivor in from his hospital bed where he addressed the crowd directly. And when we left that meeting, everyone who came was signed up for a counter surveillance shift to join Copwatch in monitoring, not the FBI, but the SFPD's activities around the neighborhood. And I, I say that saga for a couple of reasons. One is the abdication by Nancy Pelosi of the responsibility to represent the district. Two is the inclination of our campaign and and me as an organizer, to not just seek support from the community but to organize the community and put people in a position to better defend themselves and their neighbors. Three is just the end, this is where we started, the precarity of people who are experiencing homelessness and the vulnerability, not just to public health crisis, not just to hunger and poverty and all the things that we would expect, but specifically state violence. Yeah, I think people overlook the intersection of homelessness and state violence, unfortunately, but at that intersection is really revealed what the people who bear the brunt of our system, the worst costs, what they have to deal with. And my attitude towards policymaking is look at the least fortunate and figure out how to help them. That's my practice as an advocate, and that's what our government should be doing as well.
0: Yeah. So, um, the sh- shocking, shocking stuff. Um, but I know that uh, in reference to gentrification, like we're dealing with that a lot in Boston as well, is definitely a, a problem. Um, my biggest fear is that I mean, are we going to have tents soon too? Because The rent is is very high here and i've lived here for nine years now and i've watched it continue to go up like each year each year um but who who do you think some people blame the tech companies um Hmm. but since you live there who do you think is to blame for what has happened like
1: in san francisco frankly it's local policymakers because they didn't create a pipeline or allow the, the building of, of units to fill the void. Now, just to be clear, there's plenty of property developers who are chomping at the bit in San Francisco, but they don't want to build housing for families. They want to build luxury housing for tech workers because that's the most maximally rewarding thing they could do. And, and policymakers can condition their permits on making sure, for instance, that they had create and, and include affordable units. And for whatever reason, whether it's the tax breaks that they passed for companies to try to attract companies to the Bay Area without creating commensurate housing opportunities, whether it's the failure to create that housing pipeline, we've had a, an influx of jobs and know where to put people. And, and that's frankly where the problem in here is. Now, there's other aspects to this. I talked before about the use of housing as a market commodity, this is a real problem because as long as housing is more lucrative to be kept as an investment vehicle, than as a place for someone to live, we're going to have this problem. And there's plenty of empty homes in San Francisco. There's plenty of empty homes all over the place. People have vacation homes everywhere. Airbnb is an example of sort of a business model that sort of, you know, takes homes off the market too. And there's, you know, that's a company that's tried to do some thoughtful things to mitigate its impact and them. Marketplace and I respect and appreciate all that while just noting the structural problem of treating housing like an object of speculation instead of a human right. Um, And and we could fix that. Part of that has to be to acknowledge a right to housing. Part of that has to be resource allocation decisions to make sure that we're building enough housing for everybody who needs it. And and frankly, our preceding policymakers have failed on all of those fronts.
0: Wow. How much would you say... Rent is for the average apartment in San
1: Francisco. So this is interesting. Uh, I want to give you a pre-pandemic figure first, because the pandemics hit us in an interesting and somewhat unique way. Uh, before the pandemic hit, the average rental price of a one-bedroom apartment in San Francisco was close to three thousand dollars a month. A one-bedroom apartment. It's it's the most expensive real estate market in the country, and interestingly enough, I'm this is you know perhaps a silver lining and dark cloud, because the pandemic has essentially encouraged every technology-based employer in the region to go remote, many of their workforces have left. We've had a substantial exodus from San Francisco. No one actually knows exactly how many people have left, but it is so dramatic that rental prices have dropped on the order of 20% in the last year, which is astounding if you think about it. I mean, we were working from such a high previous baseline that even dropping 20% still leaves us among the most expensive real estate markets in the country. But I say that only because there has been a recent relief in that pressure in the housing market only because so many tech workers have now chosen to go to other places. Uh, You know, is that going to stick? It's hard to say. The commensurate sort of inverse implication of all that is that the housing prices everywhere else around us have gone up, Uh, you know, everywhere from, Lake Tahoe, which is a three-hour drive away, to say Portland, Oregon, or Seattle, Washington, Denver, Colorado, Boulder comes to mind. There's any number of places in the country where, frankly, the San Francisco exodus, people leaving San Francisco, have pushed up the prices everywhere else. And so to the extent there's a dynamic here of tech money skewing a local market, while the local rental market has, frankly, gotten just a little bit better over the course of the last year, the problem, if anything, is spread to a wider range of places and so you know i I say all this to make the point that uh it is absurd and while it is getting marginally better for us in san francisco at the moment it's getting worse for everyone else and it only proves frankly the unsustainability and the brutality of our commitment to treating housing like a commodity instead of a human right yeah
0: wow i mean i know there's been um I guess we call it a California exodus. There's been a lot of people moving from California to places like Texas and yeah. um, Arizona. I'm not sure why Arizona, I've never been a fan of Arizona, but um, uh, it's, it's, it's happening everywhere. Um, and I don't know, like what do you think is the future for when you look at like San Francisco, let's say 10 years down the road, what do you, what, what do you think is the future?
1: I hope that it looks a little bit like San Francisco's past. Now, I came to San Francisco attracted to a cultural capital of the country, a beacon of inclusion, a home of the environmental movement, an epicenter of the movement for peace and justice globally. And I hope that each of those components of our civic culture define the future of San Francisco. And the very relatively recent history of the city has been to pull it away from its longstanding standing commitment as a bastion of iconoclasm, as a bastion of left-wing organizing, and made it much more like a traditional financial power center. And no one in San Francisco wants the city to be turned into Manhattan. It's just not, it's not what anybody wants, but that's what the market has been doing to San Francisco relentlessly for decades. And it's one reason why I'm very eager to represent communities instead of the market, right? We have policymakers, this is the implication of allowing fundraising to drive everything, we have policymakers chosen on the basis of who will most serve capital. And that's not what I'm here for. I don't serve capital, I serve communities and I contend against capital on behalf of communities. And I think if we have enough people in local state and hopefully federal government to match that commitment, I think that we can have a city that places human rights before economic predation, a city that houses everyone a city that can be again a beacon for the arts, a city that can be a place. You know, San Francisco, one reason I love it so much, it is a magical place. It's really hard to describe. It has this, there's something I don't understand, but it's serendipity strikes constantly in San Francisco, constantly in all places at once. It's bananas. And that energy that is so unique to our city is very much at risk by the compounding forces of inequality, poverty, state violence, homelessness. And, and we need to get on the other end of it. And if we can, I think we very much can recover the city that so many San Franciscans have long known and loved. And, and I think that especially uh, if we're able to put people in communities instead of capital and profit at the center of our public decision-making, uh, I do very much hope that the future of San Francisco is one that is led, directed, and reflected the values of San Franciscans. Wall
0: Street. thank you. Um, I have one more question for you. Um, so if someone wanted to run a grassroots campaign, what advice would you give them?
1: Right on. So the very first is to organize. I only came to running for office after 20 years of grassroots advocacy of professional policy advocacy, of art and action, of working in the nonprofit arena, organizing direct action, and as an artist, like there's a lot of different ways to contribute to the movement. If you want to run for office, do one of those things first. Running for office should never be someone's first thing. There's a lot of ways to help. And if you want to help, show up and listen first. It's the first thing is just to show up. And it's hard during the pandemic because, you know, that kind of gets reduced to virtual opportunities, right? But setting aside this moment, and and there are still groups that are organizing online despite the pandemic and it's useful to connect with them and groups that are organizing offline, but particularly when it's safe, go to the meeting, whatever you care about, if it's climate, if it's race, if it's class, if it's housing, there's some group in your neighborhood organizing around those issues. And it frankly doesn't make any sense and it doesn't frankly help anyone to randomly charge into running for office if you haven't at least connected to your neighbors who have concerns, not just to build your base, but frankly, so you know what you're talking about and dealing with, we all have ideas, but until your ideas are informed by reality, they are just ideas. And I think a lot of people want to help. It takes work, do the work, show up, support your neighbors. That's number one. Number two is after you've done that for a while, Ask around. How can you be helpful? Take leadership from the people who you're trying to stand in solidarity with and take their direction. I was invited to run for office by supporters who put me in that position. And and when you're answering the call, you can lead from a position of service instead of self-aggrandizement. And and that I think is a critical component to root any potential campaign that you might be considering in service, serve your community. So once we've gotten through those hurdles, you know, the the critical things next are to build your base. And, you know, a big part of the reason why I ran for this seat in 2018 is that because of the work I've done over the last 20 years, I have supporters who work in tech. I have supporters who work in government. I have supporters who work in law firms. I have supporters who care about gay rights because I helped establish marriage equality for same-sex couples 15 years ago. I have supporters who care about privacy because I've been fighting government surveillance for the last 15 years. There's a lot of, through the work, you will build networks. And whether the work is grassroots organizing or whether the work's impact litigation or whether the work is mutual aid or direct action or policy advocacy, through any of those different or mutual aid organizing through any of those different channels, you'll build your network. And so just to come back to the theme, anyone who wants to run for office, my central message is to build the movement and let that lead and determine your path. Because you know running for office is not frankly the point. And it's not the end, it's a means to an end. And it's one of many means to similar ends. It will take all of us doing all of the things that we're each situated for. And I'm just very eager to make sure that as we encourage a new generation of leaders to seize these seats, that we also invite them and remind them to do it in a way that is rooted in community because it can't be an individuated exercise. It very easily gets co-opted by careers if it is. And unless it's rooted in community, your effort might not have the legitimacy that it will need to overcome the power of incumbency. So, you know, for anybody who wants to run for office just get as close to the ground as you can, listen to all the voices you can, meet everyone who cares about anything in your district and do it first from a position of learning and that'll create and reveal opportunities to be in service.
0: Thank you very much for that. Cause I, I know like people that are interested in getting involved, but they just don't know where to start. <laughs> so that, that was very like informative.
1: Right on, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I think this question of how can we each participate is a really crucial one. And maybe the one thing I'd say there beyond, you know for people who wanna run for office, whether you wanna run for office or not, there are all kinds of ways to get involved. And you know, many, again, starting by just showing up, the, the element I wanna introduce here is just the opportunity to remix revolution and recreation. And I say this informed as an artist. You know, before I was a lawyer, I was an MC and a poet. And you know, long after I became a lawyer, I was a DJ and I still play music. And I think of that process of bringing people together is as important as advocating for the ideas because it's in building community that we build the opportunity to overcome institutions. It's not just left versus right at the moment. I've heard some of my allies in Congress describe it as top versus bottom. Others have described it as inside versus outside. You could think of it as capital versus labor, future versus past. Uh, But it's also about community versus institutions and looking for ways through culture, through music, picnics, anything you can bring your dog to, Those are opportunities to build networks and and connections among people in ways that can redound to any number of benefits. And And I say that particularly for people who don't want to run for office, because even if you don't want to run for office, you still have a very crucial role to play as an agent in your community of either cohesion or competition. And the more we can bring us and our neighbors together, the more powerful as a people we will be to confront the challenges that will confront us. Awesome.
0: Um, everyone, I'll be sure to put the link to Shahid's website in the description below. Shahid, thank you so much for coming out today.
1: It's my pleasure, Sabi. Thank you so much. Keep up the great work. I hope to talk to you again soon.
0: Thanks for listening. You can watch the video of this podcast at Sabi Sab's channel on YouTube.